Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, uh, Mesothelioma, Innovative Treatment Options. And today's program is a partnership between the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to be partnering with them on today's really very important program, one that I know is of great interest to all of you on the call today. Now, we have um, many participants on the call today. We have 211 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So really a bit of a global call on this, on this program today. And today's program is supported by NovoCure, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler will be setting the stage for today's program, and he'll be discussing an overview of mesothelioma in the context of COVID-19, innovative multimodality treatment options, and the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler. Well, hello to everyone, and thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, I'm Dr. Richard Grala, and I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing the program, which will discuss many aspects of mesothelioma. We'll also make a few comments emphasizing caution during this difficult time of the COVID-19 or coronavirus infection. We are fortunate to have a most knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today. I'm particularly pleased to participate on this panel with several old friends. We have a very full program. My colleagues will cover all modes of treatment of mesothelioma with Dr. Taylor Ripley addressing surgery, and Dr. Hetty Kindler will discuss systemic approaches, including chemotherapy. Uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell will then discuss communication and quality of life issues, we will learn about the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, either from Mary Hessdorfer or from uh, Carolyn Messer, uh, Messner, who will discuss uh, some of their programs. And Dr. Messner will also update us on the services of cancer care. I really look forward to all their presentations. So let's get started. What is mesothelioma? Malignant mesothelioma is a cancer of the covering or lining of several different organs, most often the pleura, which covers the lung and the inside of the chest cavity, or of the peritoneum, which is the lining tissue of the abdomen, or even the covering of the heart, the pericardium. There are some even rarer forms as well. About 90% of mesothelioma is plural, especially in North America and Europe. 
So we will concentrate on pleural mesothelioma, but most of the discussion will be relevant to peritoneum mesothelioma and other mesotheliomas as well. While it is a cancer of the pleura or covering of the lung, lung and lining of the lung cavity, it's not lung cancer. Why not? Lung cancer is also called bronchogenic carcinoma, which means it starts within the lung or bronchial tubes rather than mesothelioma, which starts in the pleura or covering, not the lung itself. And it looks different under the microscope, but can be very difficult to diagnose even microscopically. Nonetheless, experienced pathologists do special studies on biopsy tissues that are very helpful in telling typical lung cancer from mesothelioma. Now, I think this is a reasonable point to bring up the fact that we're discussing mesothelioma during this very strange time here in September of 2021 of the COVID pandemic. These are certainly not normal times. We, of course, need to be very careful with COVID around us, but we should be especially cautious of the extra risk for those with mesothelioma. We understand that people with cancer and those with medical issues that affect respiratory function, breathing, are in fact at extra risk for problems if they become infected with the COVID virus. Cancer Care has done several programs recently regarding COVID and cancer, which include protecting yourself and your family. You may wish to access these from the Cancer Care uh, archives. But in brief, I'd just like to review a few items given the risk in these special times. But first, if one has mesothelioma, please be guided by your treatment and care team. All oncology units have gone to remarkable lengths to enhance safety for your visits. So communicate closely regarding visits or televisits, treatment and testing, because remember, your team has your best interests firmly in mind. It is absolutely crucial that people with mesothelioma and those around them be fully vaccinated, which is such vital protection. While there is some controversy in general involving a third booster shot, please rest assured that there is no controversy for this when it comes to the desirability of this third booster shot for those with mesothelioma as well as people receiving anti-cancer treatment. These individuals are first in line, and as I said before, the vaccine is crucial. This is no time to take one's guard down, just the opposite. We need to be very careful at this time. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it's a priority. Every family needs to think about a plan for your own home as to how to handle the situation if a member of the household needs to isolate or begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others in the home. Televisits remain a good idea for some individuals with mesothelioma for some of their visits. All oncology facilities have become increasingly skilled over the last year or so with televisits. Often these are done with video chats using various computer platforms, but if that's not easy for you, just a phone call can often work well. Make sure you make that clear with your treatment team. Many visits are best done in person, but you should feel free to discuss your own visits and care, televisits or in person, with your care team. Either way, always have your questions ready. Again, consider accessing the cancer care programs dealing with COVID and cancer, which covers in depth many of these relevant topics. Now back more specifically to mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is much less common than lung cancer. Only about 
two or three percent as often or two to three thousand cases per year in North America. But it's on the rise in many countries. Men are about four times more likely to have mesothelioma than women, and it's somewhat age-related, much more common in people in their 60s than people in their 30s or 40s, with the average age of diagnosis occurring in people in their upper 60s or lower 70s. There are two surfaces to the pleura, and you may hear the terms visceral pleura, or the covering of the lung itself, or parietal pleura, lining the inside of the chest cavity. The pleura itself is very pain sensitive. We've all heard of pleurisy. So presenting symptoms of mesothelioma can include pain in 70 to 90% of people. And because damage to the pleura can make it more difficult for the lung to function normally, shortness of breath is a major symptom for many. The shortness of breath is often caused because of effusions, that is, fluid development in the chest cavity and adhesions or scarring all can limit the ability of the lung to expand uh, fully. Also with pain, it can be more difficult to take a good deep breath. Fatigue is seen with many malignancies and may be related also both to pain and shortness of breath. Less common symptoms with mesothelioma are things like cough. It occurs, but it's not as common as it would be in some other cancers. Now, symptoms differ among individuals. I can't overemphasize the importance of communicating clearly with your doctors and nurses about what's bothering you. This surely applies when we are discussing mesothelioma, but of course for all cancers. Communication, getting your questions addressed, is not a complaint or imposition. It's what we as healthcare professionals are all uh, trying to do. We'll hear much more about this and quality of life in Dr. O'Donnell's presentation later in the program. The diagnosis of mesothelioma is generally suspected after a chest X-ray or CAT scan reveals the pattern of pleural involvement, and that's typical. The more common condition of lung cancer is often first suspected or a metastatic cancer when people have mesothelioma, and that is a cancer coming from elsewhere going to the lung or pleura. Pleural fluid, which often is increased in mesothelioma, frequently is taken, but the fluid itself may not give a definitive diagnosis of mesothelioma. The actual biopsy of tissue, while sometimes difficult to interpret, usually leads to the confirmed diagnosis. Pathologists have special studies, especially immunohistochemistry tests, and in addition to the microscopic examination, they greatly aid in confirming the diagnosis. There are three main types of malignant mesothelioma. Two of these types, epithelioid and biphasic mesothelioma, make up about three-quarters to over 90% of mesotheliomas. Asbestos is the most common cause. Asbestos fibers can penetrate very deeply into the lung so that they can cause a chronic inflammatory reaction that can extend to the pleura. Asbestos fibers have been known to alter the function of protective cells and then the fibers can create conditions which make it easier to develop mesothelioma. Asbestos may also have other immunosuppressive properties which make it harder for the body to fight cancers. You may be aware that there are other asbestos-related diseases such as asbestosis and, in fact, lung cancer as well. Remember, mesothelioma is similar to but distinct from lung cancer. And there are some other less common uh, conditions and problems that lead to mesothelioma. So these are some facts concerning the location of mesothelioma, its cause, its symptoms, and its diagnosis. 
The next few speakers will address key topics in treating mesothelioma. I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Carolyn? Thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was really outstanding, and you really did set the context for today's program and the whole stage of it, and really um, by defining mesothelioma and really making it clear to people the different treatment options, and, uh, and, and also in the context of COVID-19. So thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Robert Taylor Ripley. Dr. Ripley is Director of Mesothelioma Treatment Center, Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, Associate Professor of Surgery, Division of General Thoracic Surgery, Baylor College of Medicine, member Baylor College of Medicine, Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Taylor will be addressing the role of surgery in the treatment of mesothelioma, um, new approaches to pain management, and talking with your surgeon about pain control when you return home. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Ripley. Thank you all for the opportunity to speak today. My name is Taylor Ripley, and I'm the director of the Mesothelioma Treatment Center at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Today I've been asked to speak about the role of surgery in regards to malignant pleural mesothelioma. Surgery has several roles. One of the roles is diagnosis. Another is palliation or management of symptoms. And then the third, which is really the topic today, is treatment or removal of all the disease, which we call a macroscopic complete section. As far as diagnosis, I'll briefly mention that as as we just heard, patients often have fluid buildup, the fluid is sampled, but diagnostics are not always uh, accurate with fluid alone. Therefore, we're often asked to obtain surgical biopsies in order to establish a diagnosis. And beyond the diagnosis, we have to establish the subtype in addition. And this, uh, this um, Surgery allows enough tissue for our pathologist to be very clear about performing all the appropriate stains on that tissue to establish a clear diagnosis. The next role of surgery, which is occasionally needed, is uh, palliation or management of symptoms. Most often, those symptoms that surgery can help are fluid buildup by either removing tissue to allow it not to build up or placing catheters to help manage it in a uh, reasonable manner. But Other than the diagnosis and palliation, let's turn to the topic of surgery for removal or a macroscopic complete resection of all visible disease. This approach is appropriate for some patients, although certainly not all. And therefore, the first step in determining whether or not surgery is appropriate is a complete evaluation. When I first meet patients with mesothelioma, which I am sure most people in the line uh, would agree, is the diagnosis, the options, and the future of what confronts you is so overwhelming that it's hard to absorb all the facts in a short meeting. Therefore, I I attempt to meet patients multiple times, and on the first meeting, I provide a broad overview of uh, what it entails to move through this disease. And what I explain first is when I first meet a patient, step one is evaluation. And once that evaluation is complete, which includes several studies I'll mention now, we, uh, patients move on to treatment. The treatment has various different roles that you'll hear from me as well as others. And then once patients are finished with treated or not actually treated, they are in surveillance or what we now call survivorship, which is management of symptoms, both physical, psychological, as well as surveillance after uh, initial treatment. So when I first 
see a patient, and especially when I'm seeing a patient who might be a surgical candidate, I perform a fairly extensive evaluation. And that evaluation has several tests, but they fall into two categories. One is a physiologic assessment, and two is a staging assessment. The physiologic assessment is mainly how strong are your heart and lungs. We look at your heart usually with non-invasive ultrasound. If there's problems, we ask a cardiologist who sees the majority of our patients to double-check and make sure there's no underlying heart disease. We look at the lungs, which are clearly affected by this disease, but also in the history of asbestos exposure, patients can have restrictive lung disease or asbestosis associated with this. And so we want to make sure to look closely at how well the lungs are functioning, how much capacity. And then next, we, we stage the patient. The first step is actually confirmation of the diagnosis. If an appropriate biopsy has been obtained and appropriately evaluated, that may have already been established. But we are very clear to obtain the appropriate pathological immunohistochemical stains with expert review to be certain the diagnosis and subtype is accurate. Next, we want to look at the entire body, not just the chest, but for some patients, the abdomen. Uh, with a PET scan as well as a CT scan looking for spread of disease to other areas. And then if patients are considered a surgical candidate, we, uh, we test whether or not they've had spread of the nodes to the middle of their chest. These are called mediastinoscopy or less invasive procedures uh, are performed with a bronchoscope down the throat with an ultrasound. And then lastly, if we're considering operating on the chest, we look in the belly directly because we all know that this disease can spread very, on very thin layers of the surface of the body. In the chest, it's called a pleura, and the peritoneum, in the abdomen, it's called a peritoneum, by looking directly with a five millimeter scope. Once this is, once we have completed this entire evaluation, I sit down and talk to the patient about what we recommend as the best treatment approach. That may be chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery or often a combination of the above, either at the same time or in sequence. Um, and so for the patients who are, who are candidates for surgery, we, we recommend surgery always in the, in the context of multimodality therapy. Multimodality therapy is basically a fancy way of saying more than one treatment, such as surgery and chemotherapy or surgery and immunotherapy. And then for the operations itself, in order to remove all the disease, which we call, again, a macroscopic complete resection, two basic procedures are performed. One is a lung-removing operation, and the other is a lung-sparing operation. The first one's called an extrapleural pneumonectomy, and the next one's called an extended pleurectomy and decortication. Over the last several years, most of us have preferred the pleurectomy and decortication, which is the approach to keep the lung in place and not remove it because, first, the lung is preserved and patients with limited lung capacity obviously have better function if they have two lungs instead of one. Next is, from what we know, even though they've never been directly compared, patients do as well in the long term, whether they have their lung removed or remain in place. And lastly, the risk of the procedure itself in the short term is lower with a lung sparing approach. Therefore, we uh, preserve this, uh, prefer this approach, especially if patients are a little bit older or not quite as strong. And so those are our main approaches to surgical resection. As you know, and we've been asked to talk about today is pain control. Pain control has different causes. One of the, it, 
obviously for patients who undergo surgery, we make sure to optimize the pain control for the procedure. But pain is also potentially associated with this disease, especially if it involves the nerves and the chest wall, which do hurt. So when we operate on a patient, our goal is that the patient is up and out of bed and walking. Walking allows the patients to deep breathe, cough, clear secretions to get in their lung, which helps prevent complications like pneumonia, which are a risk for patients with this disease. And in order to do that, our goal is to reduce or sometimes even eliminate all narcotic use by using what we also call a multimodality pain approach where we use drugs such as Tylenol, ibuprofen, gabapentin, lidocaine patches, these non-narcotic-based approaches so that the patient is awake, alert, can take deep breaths and participate in their care. Those are how we approach the patients in the short term, especially during the hospital, in the hospitalization. Now, as a week, two weeks go on, our goal is that the patient is up and walking and ambulating both in the hospital before discharge as well as at home. The most important care for the lung is actually aerobic. And for the vast majority of patients, that entails uh, walking. Occasionally, patients prefer the exercise bike or elliptical machines, but walking is usually adequate. And the other thing that I encourage all of our patients to do, not even with mesothelioma surgery, but even with our robotic and invasive surgery, is to work on stretches of the chest wall. I specifically approach the chest wall without going through the major muscles of the chest, that muscle is called the latissimus dorsi and the serratus anterior, so that those muscles are completely intact. And therefore, the patient can stretch and move this part of their body without a risk of injury or muscle tear. And then in the long term, most patients can be managed with minimal or no medications, but for some patients who have chronic pain, either from surgery or from the disease itself, we have alternative approaches to help manage that. Now, as we've mentioned, some of those are medical, but for occasional patients, we have different approaches in which our colleague, a neurosurgeon uh, in our institution can help in which pain medications through pumps can be inserted, nerve stimulation in the chest wall. And then one specific procedure is actually a cordotomy in which the nerves of the chest wall can be interrupted in the pain fibers so the patients do not feel the pain radiating from the chest. Now, these approaches are relatively rare, but unfortunately, some patients do require this, and therefore, we make sure that even up front, we discuss the different approaches to manage pain if that, if that were to occur, and especially if that were to be long-term and chronic. So in summary, uh, surgery is an important component of mesothelioma care. It is one component, not the, all the treatment. It's performed in two main routes with a lung sparing or a lung removing, most groups now revert in lung sparing, although that is not always the most appropriate uh, approach. And lastly, the pain control after surgery is manageable, especially with a different variety of medications that we have available today. And then in the long term, we can help control the pain with a variety of techniques. So if you are at home suffering, please let us know because we can think of um, alternative and creative ways to help you enjoy your life and improve the quality of life, most specifically by addressing these issues. So again, my name is Taylor Ripley at Baylor College of Medicine, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak this afternoon. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor Ripley. That was outstanding, really a wonderful presentation. And I think, um, and also um, both in terms of the surgical approach, but also in terms of pain management, which is so important. And I think your comment um, in concluding was that people be sure to let their healthcare team know if they are having pain when they're at home. And that's true across the board because that uh, otherwise you wouldn't be able to know that they're in pain or the pain management that they have isn't working. So thank you for that comment. And I know there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Hetty Lee Kendler. And Dr. Kendler is Professor of Medicine, Director of Mesothelioma Program, the University of Chicago Medicine. And Dr. Kendler will be addressing the role of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted treatments in the treatment of mesothelioma, um, managing symptoms, treatment side effects, and discomfort, and guidelines for preparing for telehealth, telemedicine, appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kindler. Hello, um, I'm Hedy Kindler, Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago, and I'm delighted to be able to speak with you today about uh, treatment of mesothelioma. This past year has really transformed how we treat mesothelioma in terms of systemic therapies. Um, in past years, the only option that we had for mesothelioma treatment was chemotherapy. And those chemotherapy drugs were two, Olympta, also known as Pemetrexid, and um, a platinum, either cis or carboplatin. These are drugs that are given to help people um, shrink tumors, feel better, and live longer. But um, once these treatments stopped working, in general, the only options were clinical trials or some other somewhat less effective treatments. But in this past year, there have actually been five uh, randomized trials comparing one treatment to another that have demonstrated um, activity of new approaches in mesothelioma, the most important one of which was that the FDA, for the first time in almost 20 years, approved a new treatment for mesothelioma, specifically immunotherapy. And the two drugs are um, Optivo and Yervoy, otherwise known as ipilimumab and nivolumab. So what is immunotherapy and how does it differ from chemotherapy? So chemotherapy are drugs that will target the DNA, the building blocks of life of, um, of normal cells. And because cancer cells grow faster, they also will target cancer cells. Immunotherapy, on the other hand, activates your own immune system to recognize and attack the tumor. And so while chemotherapy in some patients can work for months and months, Immunotherapy in some patients where it is working well to attack the tumor can sometimes work for years and years. Um, so these uh, drugs have really transformed how we treat a newly diagnosed patient who is not a surgical candidate. Now, how do we decide which patient should get immune therapy versus chemotherapy? It's not a one-size-fits-all. And so in the study that compared chemotherapy to immunotherapy, the patients who had the most dramatic improvement in outcomes from immunotherapy were those who had the 
non-epithelial subtypes. So Dr. Ripley and Dr. Grala talked to you about how mesothelioma comes in three major subtypes, epithelial, sarcomatoid, and mixed, or as I like to tell my patients, chocolate, vanilla, and swirl. And so the subtype that responds least well to chemotherapy, the sarcomatoid and the mixed or biphasic, actually respond best to immune therapy. So for those patients, most will start out receiving immune therapy. For patients who have the epithelial subtype, the vanilla, the most common one, that one, immune therapy is a little better, but there are actually instances when chemotherapy might be the appropriate treatment. And so there is a nuanced discussion that the patients and physicians have together to decide which treatment is best for which patient. Sometimes when we're choosing treatments, it's not only deciding how effective it is in shrinking tumors, but also what are the side effects and how do we manage them in an individual patient. Because for some patients, if they have certain underlying medical conditions, then one regimen might not be as good for them as another. For example, immune therapy, when it tries to activate your immune system, can also activate your immune system to attack various parts of your body so that you can get inflammation of the lungs, called pneumonitis, causing more shortness of breath, or of the colon, causing colitis or diarrhea, and there are a number of other organs that can be affected. And so if somebody has an underlying condition that already is affecting some of these organs or already has an autoimmune disease, then immune therapy might not be the better option. And for those patients, chemotherapy might be a better choice. And then there are what we'd call targeted therapies. Now, in a disease like non-small cell lung cancer, where there are specific molecular on-off switches, um, and drugs to target them, targeted therapies are part of standard of care. In mesothelioma, the molecular on-off switches work by a different um, mechanism. They're what we call tumor suppressors. And so the drugs that need to be used often are more indirect in how they attack the tumor. These are still all experimental, but now... Um, these have really matured in terms of how targeted they appear to be in mesothelioma. We know that a num there are a number of specific molecular on-off switches in mesothelioma that now appear to be druggable, such as BAP1, NF2, CDKN2A, and mesothelin, and there are a number of clinical trials that are targeting these and other targets. Um, and certainly, just as the immunotherapy became now standard of care, and once upon a time when Dr. Grala and I were uh, both uh, a lot less gray, uh, when chemotherapy was uh, uh, becoming standard of care, they were in clinical trials. And so clinical trials are really how we, A, access a therapy that we could not otherwise receive, and B, how we advance, hopefully, the standard of care for all patients. Clinical trials do have specific 
eligibility criteria. You have to have the disease in question. Your kidneys, your liver need to work well enough. You have to be strong enough to be able to tolerate a new regimen. Um, and they are available only at limited centers for this disease. But certainly, if we are ever to make any progress in this disease, clearly we need to be doing more studies. I think a particularly exciting area of clinical trials for mesothelioma includes combining chemotherapy plus immune therapy, what we call chemoimmunotherapy. And that in the future may be uh, the most appropriate for certain subsets of patients, perhaps some of the epithelial patients, but we will only learn this through clinical trials. Now, in the era of COVID-19, we um, are doing a lot more telehealth. And so patients will need to, of course, receive their chemotherapies um, in the office, but oftentimes they can um, have their clinical assessments, their toxicity checks with their physicians um, online. And uh, some of our patients who are on clinical trials of pills can get those shipped to their homes and simply be monitored with telehealth. Now, when you're uh, doing a telehealth appointment, it's so important to be prepared to make a list of questions that you need because most telehealth appointments for the physician have to be exactly on time. You have a limited amount of time to convey things. And even more important, you know, the technology can be a challenge. So you really need to make sure that you understand how to access your telehealth portal don't do it the moment that your appointment is about to start. Try to do it 10 or 15 minutes ahead of time so that you are online for your physician when they need to be speaking with you. And make sure that you have that list of things that you feel that you need to address with them. Um, it's so very important that you don't wait until after the visit is over. Many of you also will be uh, dealing with uh, my chart or other patient access portals where you can send questions to your doctors or set up appointments with them um, or even find out the results of various lab tests and CT scans. And very important to make sure that you understand uh, what these results are and that you ask your physicians about them. And uh, finally, in terms of managing symptoms and side effects, Open communication, as Dr. Grala mentioned, is so key. You know, your physician, particularly when they're not seeing you physically, needs to hear from you about what your side effects are, what you're experiencing. You shouldn't just say, hey, so I'm going to have nausea and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh-uh. There are always new drugs, other things that can be done to treat these symptoms, and it's really important for you to be working with your physician uh, to figure out what they are and to help you manage them and treat them um, appropriately. And with that, um, I will um, uh, send this back to Carolyn. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kindler. That was really outstanding and um, just a really very comprehensive presentation on the many treatments available for people with mesothelioma. So thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General's Center, Mass General Cancer Center's Survivorship Program, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and lifestyle concerns. 
It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to our esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Good afternoon, and thank you for the kind invitation to participate in today's teleconference. I will be discussing communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and lifestyle concerns. My name is Betsy O'Donnell, and I'm an oncologist. And in addition to my practice in a disease called multiple myeloma, I also am the director of a lifestyle medicine clinic at our cancer center. Lifestyle medicine is a way to incorporate uh, healthy lifestyle behaviors into our health care. As all of you know, when you receive a diagnosis of a cancer, it doesn't mean that the rest of your life goes away. In fact, many of the things that are already challenging can become more challenging. And so it's important to have an open communication and relationship, both you and your caregiver, with your healthcare team about your quality of life and any of your lifestyle concerns. Lifestyle medicine specifically focuses on exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress, relationships, and substances. These are all really important pillars of our life. Not only do they affect our happiness, but they can also affect our physical well-being. It's important to have an open communication line about all of the factors that are going on in your life so that your healthcare team can help assist with those. For example, sleep can be a huge challenge for patients undergoing cancer treatment. If you have pain, uh, that can disrupt sleep, peripheral neuropathy, some of medications uh, can alter your ability to sleep, and also just the stress of cancer can keep people awake at night. Talking to your doctor or your healthcare team can help to maybe find solutions, including behavioral techniques, such as creating a bedtime routine, not using your phone in bed before you go to sleep, and sometimes even using medications to offset some of the symptoms that you're having. Opening these channels of communication can help make these symptoms better. Stress is a huge problem in everyone's lives, but that can be compounded by a cancer diagnosis. Being open and honest about the stressors in your life can help your healthcare team better uh, adjust your treatment or your schedule to some of your lifestyle constraints that make make some of these better. Relationships are hugely important. Um, cancer treatment can be very isolating, not just the treatment you go through, but the experience of going through it. And now it's never been more pronounced than here in covid where sometimes we have to isolate to protect ourselves, making sure that you have relationships that are supportive and that connect you are so important to your overall well-being uh, and to your cancer care. And so talking to your team and letting them know uh, where your needs are can help them help you. If you're trying to stop using substances, whether it be cigarettes or alcohol or something else, Letting your healthcare team know so that they can help you in that process can also improve your overall quality of life and lifestyle um, considerations. Exercise has been proven to be safe and beneficial during cancer care. It can improve moods such as depression and anxiety. It can increase the feeling of overall well-being. Exercise can mean a lot of things to different people. It can be mild exercise like getting out and walking or doing yoga. But moderate intensity exercise up to 150 minutes per week uh, is recommended by the American Cancer Society as part of good cancer survivorship and wellness. In addition, it's recommended uh, that cancer patients do strength exercises two days per week. If you have questions or concerns about how to embark on exercising, this is another important 
uh, discussion to have with your healthcare team to discuss what's safe and appropriate for where you are in your cancer care. And finally, nutrition. Nutrition is an uh, important part of our overall well-being. Eating a plant-based diet consisting two-thirds of fruits and vegetables is recommended by the American Cancer Society. Limiting refined sugars and processed foods and red meat is also recommended. Most cancer centers have um, the opportunity to speak to nutritionists. If this is something that is of interest to you, I recommend that you reach out to your healthcare team uh, and ask for this referral. There are often a lot of supportive services that are out there that you might not be aware of. So make sure you let your team know which of these lifestyle needs you have so that they can help better your care, which will overall improve your cancer experience and your quality of life as you go through cancer treatment. This is just an introduction to lifestyle medicine, but I encourage you all uh, to um, consider these factors, and uh, I wish you wellness. Thank you. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really um, an outstanding reminder to everybody about the importance of lifestyle, quality of life, um, and, um, and giving people some really excellent tips. So thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Mary Hestorfer, and Ms. Hestorfer is Executive Director of Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, and she'll be addressing the free programs and services of the Mesothelioma Research, Applied Research Foundation. Um, this, she is a partner, and they are a partner with us on today's program, and um, she will be um, giving you just such wonderful information. So it's my really great pleasure to turn this program over to um, Ms. Hestorfer. Thank you so much for asking us to participate in this program with you. We're very pleased to be here. Um, I want to thank all the speakers as well. It's always nice to see that so many people are interested in the field of mesothelioma, furthering the research, and taking good care of patients. Our role at the, at the Mesothelioma Foundation is really to focus on mesothelioma and the community in general. So we work with patients, caregivers, and people who've lost loved ones to mesothelioma. We provide support. We provide education, and how we do this is through our own channel on YouTube called Miso TV, uh, where we've interviewed experts, we've interviewed patients, caregivers, and people intimately involved in the field of mesothelioma to bring cutting-edge research and all things that are important for you to know. In terms of support, we have a number of uh, ways that we provide support for patients and caregivers and bereaved. We have Facebook groups, which are private groups. They're by invitation only. And that's just we screen the patients and the caregivers and bereaved just to make sure that we protect the integrity of the groups. Um, we also have a telephone group that meets once a month. Again, individual groups for spousal loss, patients, caregivers, um, and also for young, uh, young widows and widowers because we see now that the age of the mesothelioma patient is becoming younger and that we're uh, dealing with people who are at a different stage of life and we felt that they needed their own support. Um, one of the other big areas that we are, that we are very involved with is advocacy. Uh, we are very focused on work on the Hill to make sure that we follow all the any changes to insurance, to Medicare. Um, we're very interested in trying to get a mesothelioma patient registry started. Uh, we've secured some funding, and we have a pilot study being done uh, in partnership with NIOSH, uh, which is part of the CDC. Uh, and again, this is really to help us understand the mesothelioma patient a little bit better, the experiences, the types of disease, 
um, and really to try to focus um, scientific interest, uh, pharmaceutical buy-in, and everyone to try to get to these patients earlier so hopefully we can get um, cutting-edge treatments and really educate the patients when they're first diagnosed rather than when they come to the attention of the, of the foundation. Another thing that we do is we have trained staff. Myself, I'm a nurse practitioner, and my role with the foundation is to make sure that the patients and the family members truly understand the disease, um, they understand all the options that have been presented, and we work with them to help them line up treatment options or to uh, find, you know, to find specialists and to identify clinical trials that might be appropriate. We do this by taking a full clinical history. So this way, when we direct a patient to a clinical trial or to a specialist, we're sure that we're putting them in good hands for the particular situation that they might be in. Um, other things that we do for patients um, is that, you know, we have one-on-one -on -one, uh, counseling for all family members. So if patients care for them, lost loved ones wish to speak with us, a member of the foundation, we're there to help in that manner as well. Uh, we fund uh, peer-reviewed research, uh, and by doing this, we put out a call for grants. It goes out globally, um, and then we have a scientific advisory board, which really has the best minds in this disease who sit, they uh, evaluate the grants, and then they uh, decide which grant should be passed along to the board of directors who makes the final decision for funding. So we are totally dedicated and focused to mesothelioma, and if you're a patient, caregiver, or someone who's lost a loved one, I really invite you to visit us at www.curemeso.org um, and allow us to help you in wherever you are in the uh, continuum of this disease. Um, thank you again for this invitation. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Hester, for this wonderful resource for everybody on the call today and just a uh, wonderful work that you're doing. So thank you so much. And um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I just wanted to go over uh, the programs that Cancer Care offers um, for all of you. Um, so we offer um, a few programs and services at Cancer Care. And what do those include? So we do have a hope line. Um, and uh, people can call that number. It's an 800 number and speak to our oncology social workers. We have about 40 oncology social workers on staff and they will take your call as you call in. So there's no wait time for you to speak to someone. People often call with a particular question or concern that they may have. Um, and also we offer um, a sh a practical and financial assistance as well, which means a great deal to everyone. Always means a great deal, but particularly during this um, COVID pandemic, it has been very important and valuable to people. We offer online support groups um, on all different types of, um, for all different types of uh, situations and for caregivers, for older adults, younger adults, um, particular types of cancer like mesothelioma. Um, so all different situations we offer support groups for. Um, and we also, of course, offer these workshops. And um, we also offer publications. And I want to remind all of you that on September 26 is Mesothelioma Awareness Day. And um, you're going to see many uh, major cities of the country will be lit up in blue. Um, and there'll be a great awareness campaign about mesothelioma. Um, and so um, please stay tuned for that. We always do this program about a week before this. So we want to call attention to this to all of you. Um, and now um, we do have time uh, for um, a Q&A from our speakers, and I'm going to uh, ask um, that we bring all of our speakers on board. 
um, and uh, and we will take as many of your questions as possible. So I'm going to ask um, Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So we have a question from from one of our um, participants. So I'm going to give this question to Dr. Kindler. What are the treatments in trial? Um, what about CAR T cell treatment? How does that work in mesothelioma, and how is the success of it? So um, it's a great question. So when evaluating things in clinical trials, because the trials are ongoing, it's a little bit more difficult to make an assessment. Um, but CAR-T is clearly one of the um, more cutting-edge types of treatment. Uh, think of it as a way of very specifically activating your immune system to um, target a very specific target on the surface of your mesothelioma cell. And the most common target looked at in clinical trials, uh, CAR-T clinical trials, is mesothelin, which is a nicely named um, target uh, for mesothelioma on the surface of epithelial mesotheliomas. Uh, CAR-Ts uh, do require that patients be fairly robust as they um, are generally inpatient approaches and um, often um, uh, require a decent amount of time to prepare the CAR-T, so patients need to have reasonably stable disease before going on. Uh, there are a number of different approaches to doing CAR-T. These are highly experimental, and I would strongly encourage patients to uh, participate in one of these clinical trials. Excellent. Um, and uh, a couple of questions for Dr. Kindler. So for a patient with 98% PDL1 status, is pembrolizumab more effective than nivolumab um, and ipilimumab combined immunotherapy? So we are still in the infancy of um, trying to define exactly which patient should get which treatment when we're talking about immunotherapy. They simply haven't been around for long enough. And so um, there haven't been comparative studies comparing uh, Pembro versus Ipi plus Nevo. Um, what one could say is that in a previously untreated patient, uh, there is great data for looking at Ipi plus Nevo, and um, as long as the patient was able to tolerate it, that would be where I would go. In a patient who has received prior treatment, such as chemotherapy, uh, where they may be not as, um, you know, as robust as if they had not received any prior treatment. Um, if they had a very high PDL1, 98% is astronomically high, uh, then it would be certainly reasonable to go ahead with just a single agent, also reasonable to do the doublet. But uh, I've certainly many times given the single agent, particularly in older patients with a high PDL1, it is quite reasonable. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and this is a question um, for Dr. Ripley um, about pain management. The pain relief is the doctors gave my husband are not working well. The doctor says there isn't much else he can do. 
what can I do to help my husband? Um, so, Dr. Ripley, if you could discuss pain management and pain teams and it might be helpful to this particular um, uh, there, wife. So, without getting into the specifics of which medicine or which approach for, for uh, this patient's husband, I think if if the pain is inadequately being controlled on the current regimen, it's worth seeking uh, groups that either do palliative treatments or symptomatologists or pain specialists who can figure out novel ways or combinatorial ways to approach pain that can help uh, reduce these. So at this point, I'd recommend seeking out um, additional expertise specifically in the palliative care of mesothelioma patients. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, um, and a question for um, another question for Dr. Ripley. Um, how does my pneumonitis affect the advisability of success of my PD or EPP surgery? This this is also similar to how we evaluate combined immunotherapy and what's the best approach is a bit of an unknown. As these clinical trials, such as Checkmate 743, has shown positive results, what, what often follows the clinical trials is the long-term effects of using clearly pneumonitis is associated with immune-based approaches. Um, pneumonitis ranges from very mild to extremely severe. And so the best approach to deal with it now is to pursue uh, direct evaluation of a given patient's lungs through pulmonary function tests, BQ scanning. And if those numbers are preserved, regardless of a baseline immuno, uh, immune pneumonitis, potential surgical options are still on the table. But that's a very highly individualized decision that has relatively sparse data to this point. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. We really are lucky to have these expert speakers on our call today. Thank you so much. Another question from one of our participants, um, and this would be for Dr. Kindler. When using Keytruda, how long can it be used being treated for a bitumor made up of mostly ceramatoid, um, 70%? Ceramatoid. Mm-hmm. Yep, so again, we're still in the beginning stages of knowing everything there is to know about immune therapy. And so the current standard of care is that patients are treated for two years. Um, it may be in the future that we learn that patients only need one year of treatment or they need five years of treatment, whatever. But for now, the current standard of care is two years. Patients are then still followed even after that two-year period with periodic CT scans, blood tests, and physical examinations because some of the immune side effects can still occur even when one has completed immune therapy. If the cancer does start to regrow, one can retreat with immune therapy, either with one drug, such as Pembro or Nevo, or with two drugs, such as giving it the Aniva. So um, uh, for now, the standard is two years. 
Excellent. And I have another question for you, Dr. Kimler. This um, may be our last question. Um, I was diagnosed, and this is a long question, um, I was diagnosed with epithelioid mesothelioma in March 2020 and opted not to have surgery or chemo, as was advised by my doctors at the time. I just started with immunotherapy um, infusion with Optivo and Yerve treatment on November 9th and had two treatments so far. And we'll have them every three weeks going forward for the next two years, perhaps. I have not experienced any side effects during the treatment or after, so that that is good. And I am learning much from this program today. Uh, would you be able to please provide me w with your thoughts regarding my above treatment path and any recommendations you may have? And I just want to, before you respond, um, Dr. Kindler, um, just to let the participant know that probably based on this information, of course, not having all your records in front of Dr. Kindler, um, if your response would have to be uh, somewhat limited, but I'm going to ask Dr. Kindler if you would like to comment on this question um, in any event. Sure. It's difficult to give very specific medical advice to a patient one hasn't actually seen, but this sounds like a very reasonable approach for an epithelial mesothelioma patient. Um, you know, some epithelial mesotheliomas can be uh, fairly slow-growing initially, and so watching and waiting, as this patient did initially until things started to worsen, was reasonable. Ipi and Nevo or Yervo uh, and Updevo are the current standard of care, and it's very reasonable to be receiving this and be monitoring very closely with your physician so that if there are any side effects, they are attacked early. Um, I really have no further comments. It's a very reasonable and standard okay. approach. Should this then either not work or um, or um, the patient have side effects, then there are both standard and clinical trial options that are available. And occasionally patients can have such dramatic effects from the immune therapy that surgery then becomes an option in the future. Excellent, thank you. And here's a question for, I believe, Dr. Ripley, and if, um, or if another would be more appropriate, let me know. Um, my mesothelioma began in the peritoneal area and has migrated to the pleural cavity. Is there also a risk of it migrating to the heart area? Are there ways to avoid or prevent this? Um, can you comment on this, Dr. Ripley? Or so, Yes, I, I can comment on that. So this one... The parts of the body that are at risk for mesothelium are the peritoneum and the pleura, which are mesothelial lining of the body. That lining is also present in the opposite chest as well as the heart. And the risk factors associated with disease in those areas are probably all the same. And so whether or not it will grow up in a different area or not in the future is hard to predict. That's essentially predicting the future. But the uh, approach would be, that if you have disease in the peritoneum or the chest that's adequately treated by any method we've talked about, chemotherapy, combined immunotherapy, surgery, or so forth, that measuring and treating the disease that is visible uh, is ideally treating the disease that might have spread this at a molecular level. When we start talking about these concepts of future risk, they, they get a touch hypothetical and so these answers are a bit speculative. So I like to focus on treating the disease that we can see and evaluate as the approach that ideally treats disease anywhere else in the body that we cannot see and evaluate. Thank you. And uh, last question, and this will be a question for Dr. Grawler. What do the letters and numbers mean in my staging? 
Oh, well, um, of course, I don't know your staging, but in most cancers, uh, the lower the number of a stage, one, two, and then higher numbers, three and four, refer to how localized the cancer is. So the lower the number, the more localized, the higher the number, uh, and then in the middle is becoming um, more uh, regionally advanced, and then the higher the number means that it may be going elsewhere. Now, letters then uh, uh, in various cancers uh, then refer to certain ways that the uh, cancer is affecting certain organs. And so uh, then there are letters and numbers depending on how localized, how widespread, and then certain presentations within locally or more widespread. Now, in some cancers, molecular factors, things under the microscope or things that are uh, found by doing very special tests then uh, are also used as part of the staging. And these things are in a, a form of flux in a, in a variety of different cancers. And I think we will see different numbers and letters um, used as it goes by. But briefly, the lower the number, the more localized. The higher the number, the more likely it is to be more spread. And then different letters refer to uh, uh, certain ways that uh, a cancer presents. This is very worth discussing with your treatment team because it's very individualized. And so uh, you can easily ask your team, uh, what stage of cancer do I have? What does it mean? And can you explain to me uh, why it is that I was uh, uh, that my cancer was found to be a certain stage or letter and what that means. And then how does that uh, imply treatment or uh, outlook or uh, different ways of approaching my disease? Thank you. And, um, and then uh, one last question, um, and this one would be for um, Dr. Hindler, does mesothelioma typically only spread from its point of origin, or can it skip to remote areas? So uh, mesothelioma tends to stay where it started for much of its natural history. So patients with mesothelioma of the pleural lining, it tends to stay in that neighborhood. It can cross over to the other lung or pleural lining. It can um, commonly go into the peritoneum or abdominal cavity. Um, it is uncommon for it to go to places like brain or bone. When it does, it's more common in the sarcomatoid or the chocolate variety. Um, and uh, but those are the principal places it goes to. It very rarely will go to the liver. Uh, again, more in later stages of disease, particularly in patients who might have had surgery in the peritoneum that disrupts the um, lining around the liver. Thank you so much. Um, and um, and now um, I'm just going to thank all of our speakers for an excellent presentation, really. And... Um, uh, and now um, I want to just a review for all of you, um, those of you who asked your questions, I want you to actually take your questions that you asked and bring them back to your healthcare team. For those of you who didn't get to ask your questions, please um, take
take those questions back to your healthcare team because they know they know you all the best. And for those of you who think of another question, please take that back to your healthcare team. Also, um, in concluding, I we do not want anyone, any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with mesothelioma. You do have your treating healthcare team, and for additional resources, we want you to know that you can contact both Cancer Care and the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. Both of those organizations do have support programs and groups and all types of activities for people with mesothelioma, as does your treating healthcare team often. So be aware that there are resources both in your in your cancer center and your, with your doctor's team, as well as with both, and mesothelioma research, applied research foundation is a wonderful resource for all of you to actually access as well. So that again, we don't want you to feel that you're alone. We want, you, although it is, it is quite normal to feel alone sometimes, obviously with cancer and then with mesothelioma, and then also during this pandemic. But we also want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, and we are here to help you as well. Um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.